Madeline went to bat for um, the notion that God can speak through artists who are themselves not even aware that God is speaking through them, um, who may claim no particular religious belief, um, who, you know, but their, their talent alone speaks to the glory of God. Madeline Lingle was known for her fascinating perspectives on science, art, story, and faith. She was also a lightning rod for controversy. She was too Christian for some people, too unorthodox for other people, but somewhere in the middle was this complex woman whose embrace of paradox continues to be a beacon for generations of readers struggling to reconcile faith and science, art and religion, sacred and secular. Well, I couldn't get Madeline Lingle on the podcast for obvious reasons, but the very next best thing is that I have Sarah Arthur today, and she just released a book all about the life and faith of Madeline Lingle, and her book is called A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Lingle. Uh, and you're going to love this, uh, this podcast because uh, if you are someone who loves Madeline Lingle, then you're going to want to get this book, and you're going to want to listen to Sarah's thoughts. But also if you're a person who struggles like I do, uh, with some of the certainty surrounding Christianity and some of the either-or thinking, the, di the differentiation between sacred and secular, you're going to want to listen to this one. So without further ado, please enjoy Sarah Arthur and then go out and buy her book, A Light So Lovely. Well, welcome to This Good Word, my friends. I'm here with Sarah Arthur. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Sarah, uh, you were approached by a publishing house to do a book about Madeline Langle. And when that publishing house got in touch with me about interviewing you, I was like, what? Yes, of course I would love to talk to Sarah about Madeline. And so this book, A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Mad Madeline Langle, uh, gosh, I, I just can't wait to get into it. But uh, t tell me, when did you first fall in love with Madeline and, and her writing? Oh, I, well, there's a, I, I interview a ton of people for this book and a lot of us have a similar story. Like we would have read some of her like young adult fiction and middle grade fiction, um, as kids and maybe didn't connect that Madeline Langle with then the Madeline Langle who wrote Walking on Water, um, and some of her other nonfiction that I then discovered in college. So I think I fell in love with her when she, I read one of the Austin Chronicles, which was a middle grade or young adult book, and um, but never read A Wrinkle in Time, I don't think. I was not really sort of science fiction geeky like that, um, and so I was sort of turned off by whatever the cheesy covers of that would have been in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that looks like too much science. Um, and so, but I was really into like romance. I guess my tastes were not very cultivated. Um, and so enjoyed, you know, like um, the moon by night, uh, which is a Austin family chronicle. But yeah. then in college, my college roommate introduced me to, um, a circle of quiet and some of Madeline's other works and that those really spoke to me, yeah. her nonfiction. So yeah, I think that's when I really began to take a deep dive. 
Yeah, and I, uh, <clears throat> in reading your book, I found out that you went to Wheaton College. I, yes, <laughs> I did. I went to Wheaton grad yeah. school. Um, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Back in the early 90s. Yeah. So I, I have oh, many, Oh, we were there many, many at the memories. same time. We, oh my gosh. Well, for real, awesome. 91 awesome. to 95. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe that's why you look familiar. <laughs> I don't know. Back, you know, show oh, up Lord. at Saga and be like, oh, oh Yes, maybe it was a salad. <laughs> it could have been, could have been. Although I, I was growing my curly, curly hair out during my Wheaton days, and so I looked like yeah, a freak. So the time, no, Just everybody so awesome. did. We were all grunge. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, lots of big, oversized plaid shirts going on. Hacky sack. Please yeah. tell me you played hacky sack in the I, quad. I didn't. You know, oh, it, okay. I seriously, I was like, I had no Where campus were you life. And what I, were you doing? Yeah, I, I mean, it was grad school, so I was, I was studying, working. Uh, volunteering. I mean, it it was a crazy two years for me. So I I literally had almost no, almost no campus life, Um, which was okay back then. I mean, I was like, you know, I kind of wanted to get my degree and get out. Yeah. Um, Well, while you were there is probably when Madeline came to campus um, and she signed books for, I mean, I remember getting a couple of my books signed um, and I still have them. And, uh, and I don't, I mean, she was kind of this force of nature um, and did not fit the Wheaton vibe at all. Yeah. Um, she was kind of startling in that way. Well, I kind of wanted um, to ask you about that because, and you write yeah. about that a little bit because you got to Wheaton and it was kind of a wake up call for you because you grew up Presbyterian and didn't really have that sort of hardcore binary evangelical this or that spiritual <laughs> sacred uh, <laughs> distinction. <laughs> They're sacred and secular. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. It, what did I say? <laughs> Spiritual and sacred. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> but it was. But it, I, I got it though. I was with you. My brain. I'm. I am just off a of vacation, so my brain is mm-hmm. is about seventy percent charged, and and like it should be fully charged, but I don't know why it isn't. But That's but okay. yes, the I was with you. and 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 so Madeline sort of helped you um say wait a minute i don't i don't have to buy into this binary stuff um i can i can dive into paradox and so uh talk to me about how how madeline helped in that stage for you yeah yeah well one of the i mean it's a little startling if you grew up mainline in any form and then end up at wheaton (laughs) because there's a kind of grammar that is a little foreign, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. unless you were in a super conservative mainline church where they're shaped in a lot of ways by Christian subculture, evangelical subculture, in the books they're reading, in the music they're listening to, in the camps they go to, et cetera, um, then there's kind of more of that language. But that wasn't my upbringing. Um, and so I had uh, I had to do a lot of code switching. Um, I mean... <laughs> Uh, trying to interpret and translate my faith experience in ways that didn't sound to my evangelical friends like I was just like straight up flaming liberal, mm-hmm. um, you know, like what sort of vocabulary is this kind of thing? Like what, you know, yeah. what witchcraft are you <laughs> believing in? And it, it was strange. Like I had really good friends, though, that didn't buy into any of that stuff. They totally accepted me for who I was. And and um, and then also many of 
the the people who come from backgrounds that are other than conservative evangelical kind of clump together at Wheaton, usually in like the art department or the English department. um, And so we found each other, you know, here are my people. Um, But lots of professors, too, who just didn't buy into binary thinking, that things have to be either or sacred or secular. Um, Creation or evolution is a big um, you know, uh, liberal or conservative mm-hmm. politically even, um, and just some really gracious and thoughtful professors. And I think the, the English department is, um, back in the seventies first invited Madeline to campus. And, and I think it was in part because, I mean, someone that I read said that CS, their interest in CS Lewis kind of charted the way for, um, readers of evangelical backgrounds to be influenced by something other than people who are formed within evangelicalism. Lewis wasn't, Madeline wasn't, um, and they expanded our imaginations to imagine what God can do instead of constantly talking about what God cannot do. Um, And that was, I, I, she just inhabited, she straddled these different worlds kind of effortlessly. It was fast. It's fascinating as I worked on the book to realize like, this is a woman who was president of the author's guild. At, you know, it's like big New York publishing world um, with people like Judy Bloom and Lloyd Alexander. And then she would turn around and go speak at Wheaton college, Westmont college, Seattle Pacific, like the list goes on yeah. of, uh, of, you know, kind of her circuit in evangelicalism. It's fascinating. Who does that? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, she, I, I think she, um, earlier, like now, I think she would even be, if she was still alive, she would even be more popular, I think, because there's this hunger for both end and to oh, sort yeah. of transcend oh, yeah. the binary thinking. But so I think mm-hmm. it's even more, uh, amazing that, that she, uh, had that evangelical f- toe in the water in the evangelical water mm-hmm. even even mm-hmm. back then so yeah yeah so well, and kudos to the people kudos to the people who um were willing to take a risk yeah. right and bring her and thought that conversation was worth having and were willing to say that the power of the holy spirit is stronger um than whatever fear was out there about what people didn't understand in her writing right, right. Um, cause there was a lot of super conservative and fundamentalist backlash against, um, against her, um, some of the themes in her stuff. And, you know, she's one of the big conversations I have in the book is about universalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and her friendship with Lucy Shaw, who's a poet and writer, um, and, and how they would spar about some of those theological ideas and, uh, you know, it's risky to bring somebody who's being charged with that sort of what some people would consider a heresy, right? right? right. Um, and kudos to those folks for bringing her anyway. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And allowing her to speak about those things on her own terms instead of just making assumptions from what she's written. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So tell tell us about the spiritual background of Madeline Lingle. How how did she? How did she grow up and what kind of home and, and what formed her uh, faith? Yeah, well, I mean, that the, my entire book charts that narrative. So I start with um, she would often talk about having a lonely childhood in a New York apartment um, raised by uh, 
two parents who are quite a bit older when they had her and they were gone a lot because they participated in the arts world. And a lot of that stuff happens in the evenings, right? So they'd mm-hmm. be gone all evening and then they'd sleep in all morning. And so she was lonely um, and she read a lot. When I say a lot, I think like her closest friends were books, basically. So she, you know, was reading Ellen Montgomery and um, George MacDonald and um, Hans Christian Andersen and the Bible. Like hmm. it was just any other amazing story. Um, and because she was allowed to read the Bible in that way, she had a special, imaginative, adventurous, um, just like, whoa, kind of experience with those stories of scripture, which I love that. Um, she also, they were all kind of vaguely Episcopalian. They would kind of go to evening services sometimes. And so a lot of her theology was then formed in, um, Anglican boarding schools for better or worse. Right. So like, um, when you're forced to go to morning and evening prayer, it doesn't necessarily develop in you a love for the liturgy. Um, especially as she said, it was a lot of the scriptures were being read badly by (laughs) the mistress, you know, the mistresses of those private schools, like trying to get through it as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. with kids that were really squirrely. Um, And so yet still the language she said of the liturgy and of the King James version of scripture really got embedded in her sense of who God was um, along with very significantly the theology of George MacDonald, who taught her a lot about the love of God and the fatherhood of God. Um, and also he just has these really strong sort of female characters that, that in a lot of ways represent the Holy Spirit throughout his work. Um, and that was hugely formative, but she wandered a bit. She had some really tough experiences that made her question faith and as a young adult was an agnostic atheist for a while. And then as a young parent who was struggling in her writing, struggling with parenting, um, started to read scientists like Albert Einstein and Adam Eddington and particle theorists and quantum physicists. And that's like we've reached the extent of what I know about (laughs) all of that. I just I know how to say the words. Um, And somehow, (laughs) somehow that sparked in her the sense that God is very present down to the tiniest atom and the farthest flung galaxy of creation, that these are all connected because the God who made made them knows them and loves them and thus must know and love each one of us. And of course, the proof of that is that God became one of us in Jesus. Um, And so from then on, she was um, she would talk openly about being a Christian and, and I narrate all of that in the book, um, much more in depth. Like if anyone's finding this fascinating, you better believe I go, I take a deep dive in all of it because mm-hmm. I just couldn't let it go. So intriguing to me. I'm mean, like, who gets saved through Albert Einstein, right? <laughs> who knows? Maybe, maybe <laughs> many more Jewish. people than we think, right? I mean, maybe, maybe that's how see, it works this is- the best. Right. Well, and this is where we're often telling the world what God cannot do. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, of course he can't do that. Well, well, could well, maybe um, yeah. all things are possible. Yeah. So, and I mean, story fascinates me. I sort of trust that. I, I know it's paradoxical, this, what I'm about to say, but I sort of trust that story more than I trust the prayer at the camp, at the, at the, at the youth camp. And, you know, right. Mm-hmm. Because, as I read the Gospels, some, I mean, this one guy, uh, his sins are forgiven because the faith of his friends is so strong. 
that they lower him mm-hmm. through a roof, right? And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. how come that isn't the formula? Like, you have to have, yeah. you have to have, your yeah. friends have to have such deep faith. And if they do, then I think you're fine. You know, like, why isn't that the, anyway. Um, yeah. So or to, what if they're just like, we, we, we have a, yeah. What, I mean, what if, what if there isn't a formula at all? Right. What if, um, yeah, God is just, well, there's a way that, that the Holy Spirit's kind of unscrupulous, like mm-hmm. whatever it takes, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> mm-hmm. if it takes Albert Einstein, then, then that's what we're going to do. Yes. Um, yes. and, and he had, you know, Einstein had such a sense of the, the mind behind creation that was bigger than we could imagine. Right. Um, and that really touched her, yeah. you know, it's beautiful. Well, um, she also had some real, real dark periods. Can you talk some about that and how that influenced, mm-hmm. even if, you know, I mean, uh, Wrinkle in Time is maybe her f- most famous uh, series of books, and you can really see the themes of mm-hmm. light and darkness in those. But how, how did yeah, her own yeah. loss play into her writing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the, so, uh, I mean, any writer who's, work you would want to write a, a biography about and and narrate their life is the the darkness is there and so for madeline it was a it was often the loss of someone close to her so her grandmother when she was a young girl and her father when she was a teenager um and then her own husband from to cancer in 1986 and her son buy um and that's that's a really sad chapter. And, and I allow some other voices to tell that story. Um, in the interviews that I did with people who knew her, I mean, Lucy Shaw was there when mm-hmm. Bayan died. Um, and so hearing Lucy's own version of that story, I thought was really important. Um, and, and for Madeline, there's one of the phrases she loved was um, Julian of Norwich's all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And Madeline really clung to that. And she repeated that um, even when she didn't really understand it and couldn't see the arc of that chapter ending well. And I, I find that um, really powerful that, that we would, we would cling to something that's what, what her granddaughter Charlotte would say is aspirational, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that because I'm confident and assured about it. I'm I'm living into that, yeah. right? I'm 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 sort of claiming that, um, not in a sort of name it and claim it, uh, you know. <laughs> no, right, right, right. In kind of a uh, kind desperate of kind of a way, like prosperity I, yeah. gospel sort of way. I think that there's a that that at the heart of the universe. It, she would often say that God will not fail with any of us. Hmm. Hmm. Like we don't serve a failing God. Yeah. Um, and and it and we don't necessarily get to define what it means to fail or succeed. Yeah. Um, but that we don't serve a God who fails with anybody, with yeah. any part of God's creation. Yeah. Uh, and that and and so part of the way that she lived into claiming that all shall be well, was to, um, she had daily practices, spiritual disciplines, if you will. And prayer was one of those. Um, Compline was one, reading scripture mm-hmm. daily. Um, and, and and because, as one of her characters says, believing takes practice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not just this feeling that I have. It's something I live into daily with my whole body, not just my 
days that I agree to these promises or not. Wow, that that is such a good, um, I love how you said that. Um, not just the days that I want to, but all of the days through the loss and the pain. And you're, you're going through, uh, Sarah, um, you're going through, you're getting ready for chemo because, uh, as mm-hmm. you told me earlier, you have breast cancer and uh, you mm-hmm. found it out what, six hours after you turned in the final mm-hmm. manuscript for this book. Yeah. Final revisions. Yeah. So yeah. As, yeah. as you read through some of Madeline's, um, the ways that she, held on to faith and maybe even rediscovered faith. How are you doing that in the middle of a darkness of your own? Yeah. Wow. Well, I think, um, I mean, there's lots of ways that we live into liturgical practices all the time that, that we kind of forget why they're important. Right. And, and, um, you know, when we're saying things like the apostles creed and we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, um, that, that means something different to me now, you know? So the narrative in my family is longevity. I had a great grandmother who lived to 102. My grandparents lived to 197. And so literally like leading up to this diagnosis, my husband and I were planning out our, we were doing estate planning cause we're getting old like that. And, um, <laughs> we're not, we're not actually getting that old. We just thought it's, we're not waiting till yeah. we're too old to, to really plan well. And, uh, and so the long, the, the story for us was, well, we have to plan as if Tom, Sarah's going to outlive Tom by like 30 years. Um, so that's been how we've been going. Cause that's the story. And in my family, the story is often longevity is because of your, you're making good choices. Mm, yeah. right? You lived simply, you chewed your food and sat at the table a long time. You didn't load up on high fructose corn syrup. You, um, you know, you were, you were following God's will. Um, and, and that's all in some ways true. Like, I think there are natural consequences to making good choices like that. Um, but it, it also doesn't fit with my diagnosis because I was trying to do all those things. Right. And, and now the story is different and I'm realizing that longevity is not one of God's promises that's, that are built into what we claim as Christians. If anything, early Christians expected, uh, to not live very long because their beliefs in Jesus were so, um, anathema to their neighbors. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm be- I have to recalibrate what I understand about God's promises. Like when I say resurrection of the body, I don't mean like down the road, like way, way down, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, living into, um, you know, that, that sense that yes, God does care as Madeline explored of about every particle of my body. Um, and that, um, that that re- the redemption of my soul is not disconnected from the redemption of my body um and that i can't pin my hope on some sort of elusive promise that i would you know like lucy shaw i'd be 89 and still writing poetry or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. um that doesn't that that's um i have to recalibrate the way i think about those things and and bless madeline for um for not um, being afraid to be mad at God. I think that's something in, in her memoir, The Summer of the Great Grandmother, she gave her readers permission to be angry at God because it's a book about her mother's decline into dementia and her eventual death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, that permission to be mad, um, 
I think that's been powerful uh, for us as a family. This is not fair. Yeah. <laughs> and we're kind of mad about it. And it, like a friend of mine said yesterday, she's like, God, we're disappointed. We were praying together. God, we're disappointed that Sarah doesn't get to party as much as she would have wanted when mm-hmm. this book coming with this book coming out mm-hmm. um, because she has to put it, get a pick line put in. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Yeah. Um, so we're just naming our disappointment and, and anger and recognizing that it doesn't in any way diminish God's character or God's love for us. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Um, that is so beautiful. And it's, it's like one of these, you know, I think Richard Rohr says like, none of us would pick the things that we go through that enable us to learn things like that. Like, like none of us would pick any of those experiences, any of that loss. And yet when we open ourselves up to the God who really does, who really is involved at, at, at the molecular level, um, we are given gifts like that. Um, and, and that's part of the mystery, right? That's part of the paradox of what is our faith. Yeah. And we're not, we're not going through it because God has something to teach us. I mean, this is, if you've been reading Kate Bowler lately in her book, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. Mm, Yes. That that's, I mean, that book has come at a really important time for me, too. Mm. I'm not going to lie. Um, but it's, you know, I, I'm not going through this in order to learn something right. about myself or right. about God or about longevity or the resurrection of the body. But it is one of the surprising mercies that has happened in the midst of it, um, where it's just so evident that God is present with us in our sufferings. Um, and it's not evident to me every day, um, but it's... But God is, you know, not slow mm. in keeping his promises um, to be to be God with us. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, I wouldn't want to go through cancer to learn that, but it is one of the surprising mercies of this yeah. time and experience. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, that, that is so important. I would hate for people to hear that and say, oh yeah, well, you know, my, my shitty thing that I'm going through, uh, I have to go through it in order to learn this. That's, that's the way it it's works. It's a lesson. It's yeah. A lesson. It's a lesson. Yeah. That's, that's just so, yeah. So it's th- easy. It's easy to, to, um, it's, it's good to nuance. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Thank you for that. Right. Sure. Um, okay. Here's a fun question though. It may be a tough one, but if you could test her <laughs> <laughs> and meet a character in one of Madeline's books. Doesn't have to be your favorite. Uh, you can have more than one answer for this, but who is one of the characters that you would want to actually meet and talk to in, in real life, if you could? Oh my gosh, that's such a fun question. <laughs> it's really not a fair question, to be honest. I, I mean, I should have given you that before. There are uh, lots of characters I would love to meet. Um well, I'll give you the answer my 15-year-old self would have given, which is, of course, I would have wanted to have met Calvin O'Keefe, sure. who is Meg's, Meg's uh, love interest. Yes. Because where were the geeky guys who could fall in love with geeky girls? Like, yeah. where were they? Yeah. Not in my school. Um, yeah. And so that would have been my 15-year-old answer. My, um, my grown-up answer, um, I think there are days that I need Mrs. Witch yeah. um, to speak sternly to me. Um, and to not kind of give in to my complaining, um, and my whining and my, 
um, balking at <laughs> doing what I know I need to do. So um, I may not like actually want to meet her, but I think I probably should. <laughs> like she'd be good. She'd be good for my soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I, you know, gosh, for me, it's probably Charles Wallace just because um, one of my side three boys and one of my sons uh-huh. is really like him. Uh, super, super oh. smart. Yeah. And also just a little um, not normal, a little awkward, a little, you know, but. Um, and he will never listen to this podcast. So you're totally no, okay. He, saying he, he won't. He won't. In fact, <laughs> He makes fun of me for, for, for doing a podcast. Dad, you're so nerdy. Dad, you're such a nerd. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. So, but he is awesome. He is incredible. So. Yeah. I, I always wish that she had allowed him to grow up. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think the most he reaches is age 15 in any of the books. And I so would have loved to have been like, some character meets him in like their grad program and he's mm-hmm. like the rock star physicist or something that yeah. kind of keeps a low profile as sort of elusive, but he's like way famous and that's why the character's there at that university. Yeah. Um, and they good. can't, you know, whatever their journey is next, they can't take it without his guidance. Like he becomes one of the, the three misses for them, but, but she never really got there. It would have been fun. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Oh, that would have been really fun. Do some fan fiction. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you a question too about, um, about a circle of quiet and I know you're a mom. It's not the only Mm -hmm. thing you are, you're a writer, you know, but, um, but I do want to ask you about that because she, she wrote that, um, and because I, I just found out, like I have this person that's working with me on author stuff. And he found out that most of my listeners and readers are women between Mm -hmm. the ages of 30 and 45. Now, maybe that's like the the kind of person who just reads books. Maybe that's it. But, but I know that like their kids are finally old enough that they can (laughs) read books again. Oh my Um, gosh. But well, if you just keep bringing on like Jen Hatmaker and stuff, what do you expect, Steve? (laughs) She was so great. She was so fun. She was so awesome. Um, no, but, but so my, so my question is, um, a circle of quiet, what does that offer the tired parent? Um, because I think that's one of her, well, I don't know if it's one of her lesser known books, but I haven't talked to a whole lot of moms who've, who've read it. So, uh, talk to me, talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, if it just could say to every mom out there, just go out and get that book right now. Um, the Crosswick's journals as a set are phenomenal, but Circle of Quiet came out in um, 1972, I think, and um, her really difficult um, season had been in the 50s, 1950s, when her children were small. Um, so she was trying to build a writing career, but she and her husband had moved from New York City into rural Connecticut, where they had a farmhouse and they were running the local general store, and they were exhausted. Um, and a circle of quiet, um, is her sort of reflecting on why the vocation, her vocation as both parent and writer, um, were sort of musts for her. Like she couldn't, she, she wasn't willing to sacrifice one for the other. Um, and yet really struggled to balance them. Um, and, and the circle of quiet is that space that 
either an internal space or a um, for her it was a place on her Crosswicks property or nearby where she would kind of regroup a little bit um, from that feeling that there's not enough of you to go around. Um, and that just, that's a really powerful book for, especially for moms, I think, who just feel in the middle of chaos. Um, and in my book, A Light So Lovely, Sarah Bessie, I interview her mm-hmm. for the book and she talks about that specifically mm-hmm. and how powerful that was um, for her yeah. at a key moment when her kids were small. Um, and so many women writers I've talked with, um, I've got D.L. Mayfield in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, like Aaliyah, Aaliyah Marston, yeah. who's a, um upcoming writer. Yep. Those are all um, women who speak to that book as having, um, really solidified for them the sense that, um, they're not, um, that, that writing is a spiritual vocation to which they, we are called. Yeah. 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 Like, like it's not a, it's not a luxury that you maybe can do when the laundry's done or something like that. You know, it's like, no, it's like who would torture themselves with that. Right. Right. You're trying to write after your kids are in bed at like midnight and you can't think and falling asleep with your head on the typewriter like she would talk about no you 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 don't you don't go in for that unless Mm -hmm. you have a strong calling and then if you do you can't not write yeah um and so how do you kind of navigate that space um and i would say walking on water if you pair Mm. circle of quiet with walking on water which are her reflections on art and faith um those two together you know are just it's sort of like props under you it's like um you know, finding some rock to stand on. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to put down Power. on the show notes, people, uh, circle of quiet and walking on water sort of as mm-hmm. maybe two really good places to start. Obviously, uh, wrinkle in time series, the four books are, are just, yeah. are, are yep. so fun and beautiful. And so I want to ask about this too, because I, I, I just recently found this out and I think sometimes these kinds of stories can be helpful. Other times they can be sort of not helpful, but, uh, but it's sort of widely known that that A Wrinkle in Time was rejected by a bunch of publishers before, you know, because no one really got the concept, no one really understood, mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. And, and people said kids aren't going to get this. And but she pressed through. She she mm-hmm. actually was reading the chapters to her own kids, and so she knew it had a life. Can you, as a writer, can you can you talk for a second about? that moment when your idea is perhaps not being picked up in the way that you want it to be and in the mm-hmm. way that you see it and, and, and mm-hmm. how to, how to continue on, um, even in the midst of disappointment or rejections, which, uh, any writer has to be really familiar with and, and, and have a way of dealing with, but how do you, how do you keep pressing through with your idea that maybe isn't being accepted in the way that you want it it to be? Oh my gosh. That's such a fascinating question. I have a slightly different experience with that. Um, in the sense that my, um, my career has, has been largely because doors just keep opening. Um, and so I, I'm not a good person to talk with about, um, about that. It's been a very strange and not usual story in the sense that like, here, write for us about this. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Come write for us about this. And I, and, and sometimes I have a hard time, like, cause I can't do all the things. And so I'm trying to kind of be like, Hey, my friend Aaron writes about these things. Here she is. Yeah. And my, you know, um, because 
you know, once once the publishing world finds a writer that they trust, especially in Christian publishing, um, they they just get panicked. They're like, don't let her go. She's there. Don't. They're <laughs> just everybody, everybody. Um, and so uh, I can't get in, give into that panic. I think that that's that's some of it. And what, but what the challenge that has posed for me is that when I do have a, pas- a passion project. I often have to sideline that because of these other requests yeah. that are also equally important. Like I think, oh, this is an amazing project. I, yes, I totally want to do that. But then I have to put off – and my my real love is fiction, right? So then I put off fiction again. Mm. Um, and so I've been working on various different middle grade and young adult novels. And one of them I finally finished this year after 15 years. Wow, wow. Um, and so I can speak to more to the perseverance of just not giving up on a project itself. Yeah. Like even before you've ever even pitched it. Um, that sort of, for me, it's the poser syndrome. Like who am I to think mm-hmm. that I could write, like want to be Madeline? Right. Who who am I to think like I walk into a Barnes and Noble and other people are like, books, this is great. And I'm like, I want to cry. Like, Mm. why do I think that I could add one more book to all Mm -hmm. of this? Yeah. Who would ever read it? Um, So I have a lot of getting over my feeling of inadequacy, especially when it comes to fiction. Um, And that's, I think, and being reticent to submit it because I I know I want to make it better and I'm a perfectionist and I'm freak out if I don't like it. Hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of more my experience has been doubt about my own abilities. Yeah. Um, and Madeline speaks to that also quite a lot in Walking on Water. Um, she was a writing mentor and instructor and workshop leader for hundreds of students hmm. throughout the years. And Walking on Water is kind of a distillation of her pep talks hmm. about all of um, Yeah. I have not read that one. I, that that needs to go to the top Ooh, of my Steve, list. Yeah. Top of the list. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you weren't a lit major, were you? No, no. Nope. That yeah. was uh, basically I'm, just standard textbook for people yeah. in like the writing and art department. Yeah. I it, Not necessarily in my vocation, but certainly in college and grad school, I missed, I missed my calling. I mean, I really wish mm-hmm. I would have been... Um, a lit major and would have gotten more education in writing. And, um, that, that came at, at a little bit of a later date, uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, but gosh, um, it is on fire now for me. Um, okay. I, one more question, uh, cool. If you have time for it. Oh um, yeah. Yep. And so, um, we, we kind of talked about this, but but essentially, how do you think Madeline and writers like Madeline, who are not afraid to write about the paradox, how, how do you think she shaped the generation of people to talk about faith? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that that really is the basic premise of my book, that, sh- that without Madeline, um, some of our conversations around um, what is what what is what God can do when it comes to things like art by somebody who isn't a Christian? Um, I think that that those conversations would be different. Yeah. Madeline went to bat for um, the notion that God can speak through artists who are themselves not even aware that God is speaking through them, um, who may claim no particular 
religious belief um, who, you know, but their, their talent alone speaks to the glory of God. Um, and, and so she, she, in Walking on Water in particular, um, articulates some of that. And I think for the artists that I talked to, so like a Makoto Fujimura, mm-hmm. um, I, I did an interview with him for the book. Um, people like, uh, you know, the um, Karen and Linsford from um, Over the Rhine. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a book or they have a song um, called The Circle of Quiet. So her influence on artists and on authors like Sarah Bessie mm-hmm. um, and to to um, to allow us to say what that that God can speak, that God is no respecter of persons when it comes to talent. Right. Mm-hmm. That our colleagues in these arts are um, God is potentially speaking through them just as much, if not at times more than anyone who would claim to follow Jesus. Mm. That's, that's pretty controversial, right? And, and for, for people who've been raised in more conservative settings, um, and, and, but it's kind of taken for granted now, like Mm. in faith conversations with artists and literature majors, like if you need to defend your major when you go home for Thanksgiving break, um, as an art major or a lit major, you, you're using words that Madeline gave us hmm. to value the imagination. Hmm. You may not even know that that's where it's coming from, but it comes from Madeline. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, gosh. Okay, Sarah, I wish we had more time. I wish we had another hour. Um, that's right. There's a book that you can read if you, need, if you need more. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, it's called A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Lingle by Sarah Arthur. And Sarah is such a good writer, so you're going to fall in love with her writing. Uh, and if you're a fan of Madeline Lingle, or if you've never heard, I, I can't imagine someone would never hear of Madeline Lingle, but... If you have never heard of Madeline, then um, read this book first, A Light So Lovely. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. Anywhere you buy books, you can get this one. And I'll put a link to it on the show notes, uh, as well as a link to Circle of Quiet and Walking on Water, as well as a link to Sarah's website so you can get in touch with Sarah as well. So uh, thank you so much, Sarah. This was so fun. um, And you were delightful. You're welcome. It's been really, really fun. Just a plug for two more things, alightsolovely.com. They mm. can actually read sample chapters and listen to an excerpt from the audiobook, which is I've I've uh, I've never had an audiobook before. So that was um, I'm excited about that. And also we just started a one season um, podcast called the Madeline Podcast. I call it a podcast party to celebrate what would have been her one hundredth birthday this fall. So people can look for that on Podbean. And, uh, and I've, I do some of the raw audio, um, interviews that I did with some of the people that I, that I have in the book and I couldn't include everything in the book. So that's some of the extras. Bonus content. Bonus. Yes. Okay. Say the name of the podcast again. It's the Madeline podcast. You can find it on Podbean, and we literally just posted the first episode yesterday. So, um, so hunt around for that. We're trying to get it on iTunes. We're just kind of jumping through some hoops for that, but it'll be out on iTunes soon, hopefully. Um, and uh, the first interview is with Philip Yancey. Oh my gosh. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, okay, everybody, I'm going to put all that on the show notes, but again, uh, the book is called A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Lingle. If you are an audiobook person, you can get it on an audiobook. And Sarah, do you do the audio? Oh gosh, no. Oh. <laughs> 
Okay. No, I'm nice... too much. I'm too much of a goofball for that. They'd yeah. be like, "Why do you have to?" No. Oh my no, gosh. No. You didn't need to do different voices for everybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did the audio for both of mine, and it actually went I smoother. Well, yes. I mean, you know, it went smoother than I thought. But like, I I asked him like, "How how do I prepare for that?" And he's like, "Well, you don't prepare for it. You just." <laughs> Just do just it. Start. So thankfully, yeah. I, had, I had a good uh, a good producer that was sort of helping but, me through it. But okay. yeah, yeah, no, it's narrated by somebody who does this professionally oh, with various okay. different audiobooks, and she's she was a, she's herself a literature professor and does a great job. Okay, so a light so lovely, the spiritual legacy of Madeline Lengel by Sarah Arthur, and the podcast called the Madeline Podcast. I'm going to put the link to all of that stuff on the show notes. So enjoy, everybody. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.